Okay, this is week two. Jason, this is my part, right? I didn't look at my bulletin. Okay, yes, I am supposed to be preaching. Great, okay. <laughs> Excellent. This is week two of our four-week back-to-school sermon series that we're calling It's Complicated, the story of Abraham and Sarah. As I mentioned last week, our, our long-term plan is that every year in August, we'll be talking about the stories of key biblical characters. We're gonna take these chronologically. The idea is over the years to cover kind of an overview of the key players in the Bible. And this year, we're focusing on the story of the patriarch and the matriarch of our salvation history. Last week, in week one, we talked about the offer of a relationship that God made to Abraham and, of course, to Sarah. We talked about how God had promised Abraham and Sarah two things, both uh, land, which that was delivered on pretty quickly, and then descendants as numerous as the stars. We focused particularly on one of the great theological truths that the story of Abraham and Sarah has to teach us, which is uh, that our faith in God sometimes, maybe even often, requires patience. And here, uh, before I go any further, I just want to take a moment to plug the weekly podcast that Reagan and I do. It resumed this past week with season two. Uh, it's called Off Script. Every week, she and I take a, a deeper dive on that Sunday's sermon. We explore the theology behind the ideas we talked about in worship. We talked about anything that ended up uh, on the cutting room floor. In season two, we're recording those on Mondays and releasing them on Wednesdays. And if podcasts are your jam, we would love to have you join that community. But now, uh, back to Abraham and Sarah. So last week, we read the 15th chapter of Genesis. Today, we're going to be reading the first half of the 18th chapter of Genesis. And those two intervening chapters have uh, a couple of important details that we need to just summarize quickly. So in chapter 16, we read that Sarai, as she was known at the time, gets impatient with God after having waited an entire decade for a child. Abram was 75 years old when God originally called him with the promise of land and descendants. A full 10 years pass, and then Sarai decides to take matters into her own hands. She insists that Abraham, uh, Abram at the time, uh, take her much younger, what Genesis refers to as slave girl, as a second wife to finally provide the heir that they longed for. And in chapter 16, we read that Abram and Hagar, is her name, do indeed have a boy uh, named Ishmael. Abram is 86 years old when Ishmael is born, but we read uh, this is not what God had in mind. So in chapter 17, we read that 13 years later, God institutes the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, when Abram is 99 years old. We read in that chapter that God renames Abram and Sarai. They become Abraham and Sarah as we know them. Uh, and we read that Ishmael will indeed be blessed because he is Abraham's son, but that it will be through um, a a son yet to be born to Abraham and Sarah that God will establish the covenant. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. If you're keeping track, almost 25 years have uh, passed since the beginning, that initial call of Abraham 
uh, the offer of relationship until the point where we are today. Abraham and Sarah are still waiting. And the waiting, in the memorable words of this guy, Tom Petty, <laughs> is the hardest part. Y'all know the song, right? Okay, the waiting is the hardest part. Um, that's been in my head all week. Just a side note, I looked it up to see when it came out. Any guesses? 1981. The song's 40 years old, old enough to have a midlife crisis of its own. <laughs> but anyway, it's a great song. I just wanted to show Tom Petty's picture. Let's go ahead and read. <laughs> Let's go ahead and read the Bible. So this is going to be Genesis chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll come back and read a couple more verses later. Listen, friends, for the word of God, as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Genesis, and for all of our third graders and anybody else, who, any of our children who have brought their Bibles, you're going to be on page 18, very early in the Bible. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice, choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife, Sarah? And he said, there in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife, Sarah, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So one of the most famous icons in history, and certainly uh, one of the most, the most famous Russian icon in the history of iconography, is actually based on this story. Uh, this is the icon by a guy named Andrei Rublev, is how you say it in Russian. I'm a Russian major. This is not just an excuse for me to show off how to pronounce Russian words. <laughs> this is actually, a, it's a very famous icon. Uh, you probably have seen it at some point. It's commonly referred to as the Trinity, but it's also called the hospitality of Abraham because it's based on our text for this morning. Now, it's from the early 15th century, uh, and so it's obviously badly faded. This is how the icon appears today in the Tretyakov Gallery in Moscow. But this is an enhanced version where the colors are a little brighter, so maybe the one you've seen. This is closer to how it may have originally um, appeared when it was originally completed. Um, you can see just a few details. Uh, it may be a little difficult to see where you are, but there's a house over the figure on the left. Shouldn't really be a tent, but that's where Abraham and Sarah live. Over the figure in the middle, there's 
uh, a tree, presumably an oak tree from the Oaks of Mamre. And then over the guy on the right is, the, is Mount Moriah. And the focal point of the icon, of course, is, those, uh, is the, three, the three figures in the center, the three, the three strangers who showed up at Abraham and Sarah's place one hot afternoon. Now through a Christian lens, and certainly through the lens of uh, Rubidoff, these strangers represent the Trinity, uh, hence the two different names for this icon. And there are, are several fascinating details to note, details that make this icon so beloved. The first is that if you were to draw a line around the outside of those figures, they would actually fo- it would actually form a perfect circle, which is hard to do. That's artistically quite a trick. Uh, that represents the completeness and the perfection of God. The second thing to note, and again, this may be a little hard to see from where you're sitting, but they're not looking out at the viewer. Most icons are kind of a connection between whoever the saint is and whoever's looking at it. But these uh, figures are not looking out, nor are they looking at each other, which is also kind of unusual. Uh, They seem to be looking into eternity, which is a sign that something divine is going on here. And then finally, and, and most importantly, certainly most importantly for our purposes today, the fourth side of that table is an open seat. So the figures are seated on three sides of the table. The one closest to the viewer, the side closest to the viewer is open. And how most theologians interpret this is that that open side of the table is the place reserved for every single one of us in God's offer of relationship with us. God's promise of salvation, which is a churchy word, but that just means God's offer of a right relationship with God. This image has, has captivated viewers, believers, artists, uh, for six centuries now. You may see it again later. For Abraham, the three strangers who showed up that day were messengers from God, announcing the promise of the son for which he and his wife had waited a quarter of a century. For Rubilov, uh, they're the Holy Trinity itself, inviting the world into a life-changing relationship. For us, more than six centuries after Rublev painted one of the most famous icons in history, this story is a reminder of the astounding and sometimes almost unbelievable, but yet still trustworthy promises of God. A point we'll come back to shortly. So last week we read that Abraham is a model of faith. We read in particular a verse that's quoted several times in the New Testament. He believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Abraham's a paragon of faith. In our reading today, it seems as though Sarah is the model of incredulousness or incredulity, laughing at this outrageous notion that she and Abraham could possibly have a child in their advanced years. You may know that the name of that eventual son, Isaac, is a play on the Hebrew word for laughter. But Isaac's name does not appear in the 18th chapter. It does come up in the previous chapter, chapter 17, where God appears to Abraham and tells him that Sarah is going to bear a son. And do you know what Abraham's response is? to that promise. According to the text, quote, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. (laughs) 
And he said to himself, can a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? But it's interesting that in the tradition, it's Sarah who usually gets the blame for laughing at God's promise. That's usually the way we remember the story. But, but the name Isaac in Hebrew literally means he laughs. <laughs> now that might refer to the baby. It might refer to the baby's father, but it definitely does not refer to Sarah. And it's worth pointing out that while Sarah kind of, she's standing outside the tent and she kind of laughs to herself and she mutters under her breath at this outlandish uh, claim of these three random strangers who show up on their doorstep out of the blue. Abraham, in the previous chapter, is actually talking to God and laughs in God's face when God makes that same promise. And here's just one more detail. Scholars believe that chapter 17, where Abraham laughs, actually comes from a much later source than chapter 18, where Sarah laughs, which means that some later editor of the Bible felt like it was important to note that both Abraham and Sarah have a hard time believing in God's promise, which, I mean, in their defense, is kind of an outlandish promise. All right, let's finish the text. Just a couple of verses, uh, 13 through 15. Listen again, friends, for God's word. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, oh, yes, you did laugh. (laughs) Amen. So I mentioned that great Tom Petty song, The Waiting, from 1981. Uh, There was another hit two years later that I'm guessing most of my fellow children of the 80s slash Gen Xers will remember. Uh, it's called Promises, Promises. You remember that one? You gave me promises, promises. Right? Y'all know that? Knowing I believe, right? Well, that song is by this very 80s looking group called Naked Eyes. Uh, for all those millennials and younger, we did think that was a cool look in 1983. So <laughs> we've come a long way, I think. <laughs> So our communications department, when we were talking about this series and and talking about how to uh, engage with the series, brought this song up, and it very briefly crossed my mind to ask Jason if we could sing it in worship. (laughs) The choir, y'all totally could have pulled that off, right? Yeah. (laughs) The sheet music might have been hard to find, but y'all totally could have done it. Um, My point is that song has been in my head all week long. For all of you who know the song, it's now going to be in your head all day long. You're welcome for that. You'll remember what the subject of today's sermon is. Promises, promises of God. Well, understandably, it seems to me, uh, Abraham and Sarah struggle to completely trust the promise God has made them. I mean, their story is actually a little bit more complicated than we typically 
remember it or then we often realize, you know, we think God called Abram, Abram packed up all the stuff, Sarah was totally on board, they moved to the promised land, Isaac comes along, all's well that ends well. It's clear that as much as they have entirely changed their lives to follow God's call and in so doing, for sure, shown a a tremendous amount of faith, they still have a, a difficult time believing the incredible promise of a son. I mean, Sarah arranged a backup plan <laughs> with Hagar. God didn't need a backup plan. Abraham laughed directly in God's face, which apparently didn't offend God too bad because nothing changed even after he did that. And neither of them seems ready to accept the possibility that God will bless them with the deepest longing of their hearts. It's complicated, their story. The key question that they have to answer for themselves is the one that the stranger in our passage asks this morning, whether it's a messenger from God or God, God's self. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And it got me to thinking, have we wrestled enough with that question? Have we answered that question for ourselves? Because if not, I think we, I think we need to. It's the question, uh, the answer for which has the power to change everything. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? This is the question that we have to answer for ourselves deep in our hearts and souls. Because while I'm not sure how many 90-year-olds here today long to have a baby, <laughs> I'm not talking about grandbabies or great-grandbabies, I'm talking about like a baby baby of their own. I'm guessing that number would be zero, but I won't put you on the spot by asking you. <laughs> I do believe that every single one of us longs to trust the astounding promises that God's made us. You know, each of us wants a life of meaning and purpose. Our relationship with Christ promises such a life by living out our faith in love and service to the world. Each of us wants um, a sense of peace and assurance in the face of the hardships and tragedies of this world. And our faith in Christ promises us that God in Christ is with us through whatever life throws at us. Each of us, whatever we do for a living, wants to make a lasting contribution in this life that long outlives us. And the thing is, our life in the church promises us that opportunity. When we give our prayers and our presence and our financial resources to make possible all of the life-changing and community-changing ministries here in our church home, children's ministries just being the one that we're highlighting today. And each of us wants to know when our days here come to an end, that the arms of God are awaiting us on the other side of resurrection. That's actually the promise that launched the Christian movement to begin with, that, that death does not ultimately get the final say. Now from an outsider's perspective, these promises of God can seem outrageous. <laughs> Skeptics and agnostics and atheists scoff at the notion that we would place our trust in such promises. 
But the revelation of Scripture is that God is trustworthy, and the question that Scripture asks each of us is the one first asked of the patriarch and matriarch of our salvation history. Is anything too wonderful for God? The way we answer that question makes all the difference. (laughs) We may wonder from time to time. We may wander from time to time. We may laugh from time to time at the notion that such promises could come true even for us. Abraham and Sarah did that, after all. But as we know with the gift of hindsight and as we're going to read in the coming weeks, God is faithful to God's promises, and you don't have to take my word for it. In the, in the Gospels, Jesus was teaching one time about um, the proper use of money. When he made a famous claim that many of you may have heard, he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You've probably heard that before. And the disciples were shocked. I mean, the disciples were kind of horrified (laughs) that Jesus would say such a thing, that Jesus would say something that would seem to exclude anyone. But they didn't realize that the lesson wasn't finished (laughs) when he said that. Because the punchline of that story is the answer to the question first asked of Abraham and Sarah in their complicated response to God's promise. Jesus said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And in all my years, I've not known Jesus to be wrong yet. So I think I'll uh, take his word for it on this one. Friends, here's the incredible thing about our God. God's offer of a relationship comes with promises that God fully intends to fulfill. It's on God's terms, and it's in God's time, which is sometimes hard for us to accept, but the table is set for every single one of us. Our part is to accept the invitation. Thanks be to God. Amen.